Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24. Now, I'm going to just tell you something. No one likes to be clueless about the future, and that's especially true of dads. Okay, so on Father's Day, I just want to tell you a few things. Uh, Dads, we don't really like to be clueless, and yet we find ourselves being asked all sorts of questions, involved in situations that we have no idea how to handle them. Some of the times we got to we got to fix bikes, fix cars, fix things that are broken in the house. Um, we got to know how to run finances, be a leader in our home. And I mean, we're sometimes even asked questions, good questions by our kids, you know, like questions like, who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? And where is this world headed? And and we don't like to come across like we don't know the answer. Right. I mean, so I'm just going to let you in on a little secret here on Father's Day. OK, if if we as dads don't know the answer to a question, we can do one of two things. OK, we're either going to fake it or we're going to go totally silent. OK. All right. And that's because a lot of dads, a lot of males that we've got a kind of a life verse from Proverbs 17:28 that says even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. OK. And so that works. You know, we just they ask us a question, like, you know, and, and we're not exactly sure what that all means when people are responding that way. That's because we got that verse. Now, let me just tell you, men also like the economy of words. You know, so for those first three great questions, I could just tell you, you know. Uh, basically, the whole purpose of life is to glorify God. We are created for God to be united with Christ Jesus, to live with him forever. We are we are saved by the gospel and the gospel has eternal implications in our life. OK, that kind of answers the first three questions. We can answer just like that. Any any other questions? But that fourth question, though, where is this world headed? You can't answer it just that quick. Now, this uh, this is complex. Where is the world headed? But let me assure you, every single one of us needs to know the answer to that question. And Jesus doesn't want his people totally in the dark. And so, in fact, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, he dedicates to the whole subject of the time to come. He is telling us what is going to happen. How does it all come down? Where is the world headed? And all of us need to know the answer to that question. Let me tell you, you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. And that, and especially the verses we're looking at today, verses 1 through 35, it's going to spell it out. What in the world is going to happen? Now, these might be some pretty white pages in your Bible. If you are in the habit of reading the Bible, you might go, oh, end times, eschatology, dealing with the last things. I don't really know, so I'm going to skip over it. And if you do that... You do that to your own detriment, because there are reasons why Jesus has told us what is to come. Now, let me just tell you, that is so that believers of every age, first of all, are going to have convictions based on truth. There is a pretty high degree of fascination about what is to come in the end times. And there's certain magazines like the Star and Choir and all these other sort of little magazines as you try to check out of the grocery store. They like to capitalize on that because there is intrigue and interest. What really is going to happen At the end of the world, for the end of the world, Jesus wants his people having convictions based on truth. Also, there's another reason why Jesus spends a lot of time talking about the end times. He wants us to have compassion on the lost. When you read these passages, you begin to see that there is a horrendous outcome for those who are truly not trusting Christ. And by understanding that, that is to create in us a true compassion for people who don't know Christ. Let me give you the third. Third reason why Jesus spends so much time going into this kind of detail is that he wants us to have a commitment to him 
and to his mission. And one of the ways that that is reinforced is by having a strong understanding of eschatology. Now, we're coming to Matthew chapter 24. Let me just tell you, there's a wide variety of opinions as to what these verses are talking about. And they come into three basic camps. You've got the camp that says all of this is something that is past. In fact, most of this happened around 70 A.D. And then there's the second camp that said, well, it's dealing with things past and some things future. And then the third camp is saying this is all something future that has particular implications for believers in this present time. Let me just tell you from my years of study, and I've, I've really given myself to study the scripture. If you've been a part of Fellowship Bible Church, you know that we've gone through the book of Daniel in its entirety and the whole book of Revelation in its entirety. We studied these things out. I'll just tell you where I land, and then I'm going to kind of walk you through this. I believe what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 35, deals with the future. He is talking, he's like taking us, and he's, he's actually transporting us, and he is speaking to the things that will happen at the very end of the age. Now, certainly we're going to look about wars and earthquakes and all these things, and certainly there have been wars and earthquakes pretty much since recorded history but not to the scope and the detail that you find them in Matthew chapter 24. And another thing that throws people off is that Jesus keeps referring to you. And we just automatically assume that he's talking about those disciples. But actually, if you study prophetic literature, especially Isaiah and the book of Zechariah, Jesus, uh, excuse me, God actually has his prophets speak and say, you, second person, it's as if they are transported in time and they are addressing the people that particularly will face these things. That is the nature of prophetic literature, and that is actually what you find Jesus doing here. So let's step into the action. Let's be, let me take you back to where we once were. In Matthew chapter 23, do remember after Jesus actually outlines all these landmines for life and leadership, you don't want to stand in them. And then there's a significant event that takes place. Verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and you stone those who were sent to her. How often I, you see that? That is real key. He's saying, I am the one who wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Jesus is saying, I'm God. I'm the God of eternity. I am the one who sent prophets. I am the one who has wanted to gather you for so long, for generation after generation, and you wouldn't have it. You were unwilling. I wanted to gather you, protect you, care for you, and you wouldn't have me. And so he said, you know what? Verse 38, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's how chapter 23 ends. Jesus says, your house is going to be left desolate. And chapter 24, verse 1, then Jesus came out from the temple. With Jesus walking out of that temple, after having been rejected by the Jewish leadership, after having been rejected when he clearly pointed himself, he's saying, I am the promised Messiah, which the Old Testament has spoken about. I am the promised son of David, and they would not have him. They're plotting his death. He walks out, and with him so does the glory of Israel. And he says, your house, not only your temple, but you as a people, you're going to be left desolate. So verse 20, verse one in chapter 24, Jesus comes out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And you can just see this. Jesus has walked out. He's making his way through the Kidron Valley. He is coming through Gethsemane. He is making his way to the Mount of Olives, which is kind of on the eastern side of Jerusalem. 
And his disciples run up to him because obviously they realize that something very significant is taking place. And they start pointing out the buildings. Now, let me tell you, the temple and the temple mount was absolutely spectacular. It was actually considered one of the one of the wonders of the ancient world. The temple itself was built out of white marble and it literally glistened in the sun. The whole eastern wall was plated in gold. All of this was a result of the work of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great, what took place is the Romans kicked out the Jewish Hasmoneans who had kind of led a revolt. They were kind of in charge. The Romans said, you know, we would like to have this territory. So they actually conquered the Jews. They put in place a guy by the name of Herod. He goes by Herod the Great. He's an amazing builder. And after he bent, this takes place about 37 B.C., at about 20 B.C., he decides that I need to have the people, the Jewish people, love me. I need them to at least like me. So I'm going to do something that will mean something to them. I'm going to rebuild their temple and I'm going to make it unlike anything that's ever been seen. And so that's where he does. And for the first 10 years, he builds this magnificent temple, white marble, gold-bladed. Literally from miles away, you can see this thing shining in the sun. It's a magnificent building. And so this is what the disciples are pointing out to him. Hey, Jesus, they're pointing out the temple and the buildings to him. But, you know, God is not so much interested in buildings. We get caught up in cathedrals and buildings. Not God. He's far more concerned about hearts. Look at what he says in verse 2. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Hey, what are you caught up with buildings? Do you not see all these things. Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And they're like, what are you talking about? What? This, this, this will never get torn down. The Romans would never let that happen. I mean, it'd be like the equivalent of saying in the United States not so long ago that, hey, the Twin Towers in New York, one day they're going to be literally destroyed, crashing down, and the world will see it. And you're like, what? No way. Security so tight? You, never. That'll never happen. Especially after the Oklahoma City bombings. Never happen. And what happened? It did. Jesus says, you know that temple that you're all fixed and focused on? One day, he said, it's literally going to be torn down. There's not even going to be one stone left atop, pop, atop another. And that is exactly what happens. In, in AD 66, there is a Jewish revolt. They've had enough of the Romans. Even up until this time, the temple was still being decorated, okay? The first decade pretty much got everything going, but they keep making all these ornate decorations to it. In 60, AD 66, there was a Jewish revolt, and the Romans come in, and they're going to, we're going to quash this once for all. And for four years, there's a general by the name of Titus, a Roman general, and he wrecks havoc in Israel. They kill 1,100,000 Jews. And when they get to that temple, you know what they do? They built these huge scaffolds. They filled it up with all this dry wood, and they literally burned that thing to the ground. The stones themselves started cracking and crumbling, and all the gold, the trim there, all of Herod's expense that came through taxes to make this such a beautiful place, that gold melted in between those rocks. And so once things cooled down, those soldiers literally, tossed aside all these rocks, many of them going into the Kidron Valley to get the gold. And Jesus' prophecy came about in, in A.D. 70. Jesus said, it's all going to be torn down. And these guys are looking at him. And so when they make their way to the Mount of Olives, they're sitting up on the top. They have this whole panoramic view of Jerusalem. As he was sitting at the Mount of Olives, verse 3, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end 
of the age. When is this going to happen? When, when is the end of the age going to happen? Why are they talking about end of the age when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple? That is because in Zechariah chapter 14, which was a key prophecy for the Jewish people, they knew that one day Jerusalem was going to be made desolate. And this is prior to the coming king, to the Messiah. And they understand this. They, they understand that he's Messiah. And so they're, they're thinking that this is going to happen immediately. And so they're asking about the end of the age. They're asking when these things are going to happen. And Jesus is going to spell out in detail what the end of the age is going to look like. Now, they're asking two primary questions. First question they're asking is when these things will happen. He's going to answer that beginning in chapter 24, verse 36 through 41. But the first the second question that Jesus chooses the answer first is what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They want to know when this will happen. Now, Jesus is going to start giving them prophetic detail about what is going to happen in a future time. I believe as you look closely at prophetic literature, he is going to be speaking about the 70th week of, of Daniel. OK, so remember our study in Daniel chapter nine, where there is these literally these 70 weeks. There is a big break between the 69th week where, where Messiah actually enters into Jerusalem and that actually happens, Matthew 21, actually exactly on time, exactly as was prophesied. There, were, there was those 62 weeks of years, 483 years, prophetic years. Jesus makes entrance from the time the decree was given to rebuild Jerusalem to the time Messiah enters. That in itself should have been the massive alert, Messiah's here, because they are calling out Hosanna, son of David. But then there is this break, this large gap between the 69th and the 70th week, and, and that 70th week of years, the seven-year period. I believe Jesus is speaking about what's going to happen in that final seven years, and especially in light of some of the, not only the Jewish detail he gives, but in, chapter, in verse 15, he actually, in chapter 24, he speaks of the abomination of desolation from the book of Daniel, which directly ties what Jesus is saying to the 70th week of Daniel that's spoken of in Daniel chapter 9 and verses 26 and 27. So, he goes and he says, let me answer that. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. I do not want you ever misled. Make sure no one misleads you. And so then he's going to tell them about these preliminary trials that are coming. For he says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And that certainly you see that in today's time. But it's going to get worse in this final three and a half year period. OK, so this future time. Now, we're familiar with this. Let me give you some names of either people that claim to be the Messiah or know when the Messiah is returning. OK, you ever heard of a guy by the name of Jim Jones or Reverend Sun, uh, Sun Myung Moon or someone that we're somewhat familiar with in this part of the world? David Koresh. There's always been some people that have these messianic claims. But Jesus says in the end times. It's going to get worse for many are going to come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah. And many are going to be misled. Verse seven and he's excuse me, verse five and verse six. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. He says, see that you were not frightened for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. He's using this prophetic you. He is warning that those who are going to be alive in this final 70 weeks this final final 70th week, there's going to be wars, rumors of war. There are going to be people that are going to be claiming that they're Christ. How do you know when this 70th year is going to start? 
Well, one of the things that Jesus hasn't spoken of, but is revealed like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, is there's going to be literally the snatching away of the church. It's called the rapture. We're in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 in 1 Thessalonians. He speaks of, of the saints, those who believe in Christ, are literally taken away and then begins the series of judgments. With Like in Revelation chapter 6, you've got the breaking of the seals. And then in chapter 7, you have this worldwide proclamation of the gospel. What Jesus is talking about lines up exactly with Revelation chapter 6. So he says, verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 8. But all these things, they're merely the beginning of birth pangs. You know how birth works, okay? You got conception. Nine nine months later, then what do you have? Then you start having contractions, birth pangs. You got one. There's a long lapse and then another. And then they start increasing in frequency and and they actually in the severity of pain. And that is what Jesus is talking about. This is a line with prophetic understanding of what is to come for the Jewish people. There's going to be a time of deliverance once and for all for the Jewish people. But it's going to come at some rather horrific expense and pain and anguish. And that's what Jesus is speaking of in verse eight. These are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. So you got, so we're, if you're with me here, in this first about three and a half years, you're going to have these various signs that he's speaking of here. But then there's going to be an event that is going to take place that is prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. You've got this break. In the middle of the seven years, in three and a half years, there is going to be a severe break that he's going to start talking about beginning in verse nine. In fact, you can notice in verse nine, there is another there's a time word. He says, then after he says these are just merely birth pangs, he says, then this is going to happen. Now, beginning in verse nine through twenty two, he's going to talk about the perilous tribulation that is going to take place. Look at this. Verse nine. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And verse 11, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because of lawlessness, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. The idea of lawlessness is that you don't follow the law. Now, certainly he's probably referring to like the civil laws and the laws that are being enforced at that time. But more specifically, he's talking about following God's law. You see, when there is a departure from following God and his word, there is the developing of a coldness of heart. And that's exactly what he's saying. Lawlessness will be increased and most people's love will grow cold. The idea of loving God, it's going to get real cool. The idea of loving others, it's going to be jettisoned. In fact, when you wait till you see some of the details of what's going to happen here. He says, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And then he says something that Revelation chapter 7, after that first three and a half years, after these seals are broken, these six seals are broken, with the seventh seal, there is a worldwide gospel proclamation. Jesus speaks of the exact same thing in verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. This is the key event. You might want to put a mark by it or underline verse 15. Because this coincides with Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. It is called the abomination of desolation. 
And he says in verse 15, therefore, when you see it, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. What is this abomination of desolation? Well, if you remember from Daniel chapter 9, there is this prince of destruction who is to come. And for three and a half years, he makes a covenant. He, he actually protects Israel. Israel finds protection in him. He allows them to worship. He's fine with that. He's got power. He likely comes out of Europe. He's, he's protecting the Jews. Israel desperately needs a protector. He says, I will protect you. In fact, you can do what you want. You may worship freely. But just like he says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, in the middle of this seven-year period, in three and a half years, then he suddenly says, game over. He sets himself up then to be God. He says, no more. From now on, he actually sets himself up on the temple. He actually says in the holy place where he is actually sets himself up to be God and demands worship. This is actually what you find in Second Thessalonians chapter two. And especially you find this in the book of Revelation in chapter 13. In fact, if you don't worship him, you actually die. This is going to be a worldwide persecution. This is unlike anything the world has ever seen. You've got Satan and he has his pseudo trinity. You've got the dragon and he has his antichrist. There is the one true Christ. Satan's got his antichrist. He also has the false prophet who kind of functions like the Holy Spirit, but it's it's false. And he actually draws attention to this antichrist. If you look at it in Revelation chapter 13, this one who's going to come is going to have like a fatal wound. It actually even speaks of a sword. But he is actually going to be alive again. And this is going to be extremely convincing to the world. This one who was dead, he had a fatal wound. He's alive. It'll be very convincing to many people. He sets himself up in the temple and he commands and demands worship. It is the abomination of desolation. The Jews had a, had a picture of this. They actually referred to an event, and it happened about 167 B.C. with Antiochus Epiphanes, when he actually came in, conquered in Israel, and he took over at the Temple Mount. He actually desecrated the temple by actually set, taking the altar. He committed it to the worship of Zeus, and he started having the sacrifice of pigs not take place not only in Judea, but especially on the Temple Mount. And for the Jews, this was the lowest of points. Not only were their customs all blasphemed, he actually outlawed circumcision. But when he started sacrificing pigs, they started calling this the abomination of desolation. They had a picture of what this would look like. But what Daniel is speaking of is an event that's going to happen in the future when this one sets himself up as God. And Matthew even draws attention to this. You see that in verse 15? He says, let the reader understand. I'm speaking of this future event that is going to happen. And he says, then when this happens, if you're in Judea, flee, flee to the mountains. And there are mountains all to the southeast. And that was the place where the Jewish people went and ran and hid. David, others, when they were facing persecution because of war, he says, verse 17, whoever's on the housetop, he must not go down and get the things out that are in his house. He's saying, when this happens, you were alive. Get out of there immediately. 
Verse 18, whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. You would never travel without your cloak. I mean, they actually slept with these cloaks. He's saying it is so severe you want to flee immediately. Verse 19, look at this. He says, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. People that would normally get help, like pregnant women. People are, what's going to take place is going to be so severe, they're literally going to leave these people. They're just going to run. He says, you want to pray this doesn't happen in the winter or on the Sabbath. You see, the Jewish people are going to be following Sabbath customs. And they're going to be forced to break those. Why? Because the end is coming. And he says, pray that it doesn't happen in winter, because in winter, that's when roads are washed out, water levels are high. You're going to absolutely need to be able to flee. Rivers that are rising high are going to be a huge problem. And he says in verse 21, but then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. The world has seen some pretty significant tribulations. Some people think, well, this all happened in 70, 80, 70. Now, not to the magnitude that it's spoken of here. Jesus says nothing like this has ever occurred or will ever occur. And he says, how bad is it? Verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. The absolute total demolition of the human race would have happened. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And God, it's really interesting. Jesus uses the word elect. He points out, hey, I'm still in charge. I'm still going to bring people to myself. I'm going to do it. Those who believe are the elect. But he reminds them that I'm the one who actually does the drawing in. And that because of my people, those who have come to Christ in this final 70th week, in that final tribulation period, I'm going to cut this short for their sake. And then there is another time word. And now we come then to the actual return of Christ himself. He says, look at verse 23. Then he says, then, then. If anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or there he is, do not believe him for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. There is going to be a widespread understanding in the world that Christ is coming and Satan is going to use this advantage because what does he want? He wants worship. He wants you to be fixed and focused upon him. He's got his Antichrist set up in the temple. He is commanding and demanding worship. But there's going to be people that are going to come out and saying, we're the Christ. And let me just give you an example of what this looks like. You want a, you want a present day example of what this looks like? Let me take you back to 2004. Uh, there's an event that takes place in Washington, D.C. in Washington, Dirksen's office building. While members of Congress watched and looked on, they all gathered together for what they were told was a peace awards banquet to award a very special a constituent by the name of Reverend Sun Myung Moon. You know this guy? You've heard of him? He's the leader of the Unification Church. He is also the guy who owns the Washington Times and the United Press International Service. He's a very wealthy man. And at this ceremony, with our congressional members watching, or at least those who were in attendance, this is what took place. This guy who's, who's there with his wife, he is, as according to the New York Times, this is, they summarize what took place. This guy had these golden wreaths placed on his head. He's dressed in this kind of like red garment with a white stool. And then this is the summary from the New York Times of Moon's speech. He said, quote, 
Emperors, kings, and presidents had declared to all heaven and earth that Reverend Sun Myung Moon is none other than humanity's savior, Messiah, returning Lord, and true parent. And that happened right there in broad daylight. That guy's in for a rude awakening. But this sort of event is going to happen in this final end times. And people are going to literally say, you're it. Jesus says, I want you not to be caught unaware. These sort of things are going to happen. He says, verse 24, false Christ and false prophets are going to arise. They're going to show great signs and wonders so as to mislead many. They're going to be convincing. But he says, behold, I've told you all these things, verse 25, in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If somebody says, I'm the Christ and he's in the wilderness, don't go booking plane tickets or anything like that. Don't go. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe them because he says, the son of man, when Jesus Christ returns to the earth, he's not going to come like he came the first time. You're going to be able to find him in some sort of stable. No, he says, when I return, verse 27, he says, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the son of man be. He's going to come in the sky. It's going to be like sheet lightning that covers the entire sky. It will absolutely be something that cannot miss, be missed by anyone. He's not going to be in some room or some desert. He says, when I come back, the world will see. And he says, verse 28, wherever the corpses there, the vultures will gather. This is speaking of the great carnage that's about to take place when the peoples of the world decide to take on God himself and they lose. And then Jesus says in verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is speaking of language of the day of the Lord, because when they talk about the, the prophets, when they spoke of the day of the Lord, there are these cataclysmic events. Sun is darkened, moon is darkened, stars falling from the sky. There's going to be this great darkness that's going to come about. It is cataclysmic. It is universal, and they are going to see this bright shining. And then verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. A lot of speculation as to what is this sign. Uh, I'll just tell you, I, I really think the sign of the Son of Man is really Christ himself. They're going to see him with all his radiant splendor. He's going to be coming with the saints who have believed upon him, and they're going to make their way. And then, I don't think it's going to happen just like instantly i think the shining will be instant and it'll be but it'll be long standing and as far as duration of time and people of the earth are going to see this happening they're going to see him coming and he says verse 30 and the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and this is real key in fact i've underlined this in my bible in verse 30 and 30 then all the tribes of the earth will mourn the reason that is so significant is because some, from zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 it says this, that the people of Israel will mourn, on, mourn and will look upon him whom they have pierced. Do you remember that prophecy? Who was pierced? Jesus. And they will see him and they will mourn for him. And John, John picks up on this. In John 19, they actually have the Jewish people where Jesus is nailed to the cross. He actually makes references. They are actually looking upon him who's, who they pierced. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, that's how Jesus is introduced, as the one who was pierced on their behalf. They're going to mourn 
because they will see him. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And then, verse 31, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. He's going to literally bring together all of his people. There's going to be a scattering of believers all around the world as they're trying to avoid these judgments and the Antichrist and the wars that he's bringing about. Jesus is going to have this trumpet blasted. It's, it's reminiscent of actually what takes place in Exodus when actually God has this trumpet blown when he gives the law and the presence of God is ascended upon Mount Sinai. He's calling together his people. The end has come and Christ makes entrance. Did you want to know what is to come? Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. And this is what my will return will look like. It's going to have some horrific judgments. But the end of those birth pangs, pangs will come the birth. There will come the Messiah. So he says, verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know what? You know that summer is near. So he said, when you see this, when the generation that is alive that sees this, so he says, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Not the generation he's speaking to. He's using that prophetic you. He's speaking to the generation that will be alive in the 70th week of Daniel. And he says, This generation, all these things will come to pass. In fact, he says, you have my absolute word on it. Look at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So what do you think? 30 minutes. We've walked through one of the most key eschatological passages of the Bible. What do you think? Do you think it's really going to happen that way? Or is it going to be just life as usual? Nah, I don't know about that. That's interesting. Sure, it makes me think. Jesus says, you absolutely have my word. Do you know why he's telling his disciples that heaven and earth will pass away before my words will pass away? Because his men are going to pay some pretty heavy costs to following Christ and representing him. They are not going to back down. They're going to face persecution and death. And his followers in every generation, including ours, You and I, we've got to be convinced. And if you're not convinced, you know what? We back off. Temperature gets up, a little persecution. People look at us funny. There's some sort of difficulty or hardship for following Christ. We walk away. We back off. God wants his people convinced. Not only about his reality and the fact that he truly has paid the penalty for sin. You who believe you're forgiven. But he wants you to know what is to come. And everything we need for life and godliness and for understanding the future He's outlined in his word specifically here in Matthew chapter 24. And so let me ask, are you ready? You see, our convictions, our compassion and our commitment to Christ reveal if we're really ready for his return. Let's pray. Lord, this is an amazing passage of scripture. And I know that it's often not even spoken of. And there's a generation of Christians that have a very little understanding of what is to come. And yet that's not your fault because you have made it clear in your word and you have 
clearly spelled out details of what is to come to shape and mold our convictions. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us a true heart and compassion for the lost. That you would shape our convictions about what is to come based upon scripture and your word, not based upon fancy and fabrication and the fiction of men's minds. And Lord, would you increase our commitment to you, recognizing that you're a sovereign God, you who have spoke forth the beginning, created all things. You're going to bring all things to a culmination in your son, whom you have drawn us to. So, Lord, we pray that as a result of looking at this passage, worship would be our response. So we come, we pray and we praise you in Jesus name. Amen.